The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage that we come to is Genesis 27, verses 1 through 46, and I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage, beginning in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son... And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare for them or from them delicious food for your father such as he loves." And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go bring them to me. And so he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. 
And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jeremy. Let's pray together. Father, we're gathered around this text of Scripture today. Because we want to hear from you. And we want to hear from you because we want to know you more and love you more and be more conformed to your image. And so please bless our efforts and glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the most perplexing subjects that people often wonder about is the question of how God relates to evil. Unfortunately, we live in a world that's filled with various kinds of evil, everything from terrorism to war to human trafficking to corruption and even things that are beyond direct human control, such as various diseases and natural disasters. So how does God relate to these things? Does he control them? Or are they somehow beyond his control? And for many people, these kinds of questions aren't just theoretical questions either, but deeply personal questions. Because there are a lot of things that we experience in our own lives that are incredibly painful and difficult to get through. So someone might wonder, for example, you know, where was God when I was going through the abuse that I went through as a child? Where was God when that drunk driver took the life of my loved one? Or even where was God when I was mistreated at work? Or when the stock market crashed and I lost my life savings. Or when my marriage fell apart. Or when I had a miscarriage. It's really not that uncommon for us to find ourselves in the midst of these kinds of situations. And asking these kinds of questions. And, of course, some would say that God doesn't have direct control over these things. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, a famous rabbi named Harold Kushner died. His obituary was in the New York Times, and and he was the author of an enormously influential book that's entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in this book, Kushner argued that we shouldn't hold God responsible for the, the unfair things that happen in the world, because there are a lot of things that are just beyond God's ability to control. You know, he's, he's up there and he's doing his best, but he just can't prevent 
a lot of bad things from happening. Or so Kushner argues. So is that the way we should view God? And if not, then how should we view him and his relationship to evil? Well, that's the subject we encounter in our main passage today of Genesis 27. To give you some background, God had promised the great patriarch Abraham three things. That he'd become a great nation, that his descendants would possess the land of Canaan, and that through him all the families of the earth would one day be blessed. Then when Abraham died, these promises were passed on to Abraham's son, Isaac. God chose Isaac over his brother Ishmael to be the recipient of these covenant blessings. And then when Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was pregnant with twins, God had indicated which of the twins he had chosen to be the next heir of these covenant blessings, God had said to Rebekah in Genesis 25, 23, that two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So the older child, Esau, will serve the younger child, Jacob, God says. Meaning that Jacob would be the one to enjoy God's special blessings. So it's with all that in the background that we come to Genesis 27. And this chapter revolves around Isaac seeking to bless his firstborn and favorite son Esau, but instead being tricked into blessing his younger son Jacob. And uh, by the way, when the story was being read a few moments ago, perhaps you were wondering why obtaining this blessing was such a big deal. Like, why does it matter so much whether Jacob or Esau obtained the blessing? And the answer is that this blessing is being viewed as something that'll determine the respective futures of Jacob and Esau. It appears as though this blessing was functioning as a kind of prophetic prediction about future events. In effect, God was guiding Isaac as he spoke the words of this blessing so that Isaac would predict the things God intended to do. And in addition, it also seems appropriate to view this blessing as a prayer addressed to God, a particularly powerful prayer that was enormously significant in shaping the future. So just know that this blessing wasn't some sort of ancient equivalent of you know, the fortune cookie message that you or I might get at the Chinese restaurant down the street. All right, it, This blessing actually had real power and real significance in shaping the future. It'll establish the identity of the son, Jacob or Esau, who will inherit the covenant promises originally uh, addressed to Abraham. Now, Isaac's desire, as we've said, is to pronounce this blessing on Esau. Look at verses 1 through 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see... He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. 
So Isaac wants to bless Esau. And his insistence on blessing Esau rather than Jacob is actually the foundational sin recorded in this passage. Because God had clearly communicated, if you remember, who, back in Genesis 25, 23, that Jacob was the one he had chosen over Esau. Right? The older shall serve the younger, God had said. But here in Genesis 27, we find Isaac stubbornly resisting what God had revealed to be his will. And as we'll see, that, that sinful rebellion and that, that rebellious decision just wreaks havoc on the entire family. Yet the most obvious and pronounced sins in this chapter are those of Jacob and his mother, Rebekah. Look at verses 5 through 10. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young, good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. So that's what they do. The subsequent verses record how Jacob and Rebekah go to great lengths to despise or to disguise Jacob so that he even feels and smells like his brother Esau. And it works. Jacob goes in to see his father Isaac, pretends to be Esau, and successfully obtains his father's blessing. Now, of course, in order to do so, Jacob has to tell three bald-faced lies to his father. But, hey, you got to do what you got to do, right? So Jacob does. He obtains the blessing by lying to his own father. He even blasphemes God's name in one of his lies. And when Isaac asks him how he was able to find the wild game so quickly, he says, because the Lord your God granted me success. Isaac then blesses Jacob in verses 27 through 29. He says, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So as you can see, this is no small blessing. Isaac goes far beyond simply requesting material prosperity for his son and instead requests, as one commentator phrases it, an entire empire for his son, basically. Uh, Isaac requests in verse 29 that entire peoples would serve his son and that entire nations would bow down to him. Isaac then requests, again, thinking he's speaking to Esau, that he'd be lord over his brothers. And of course, that was directly contrary to what God had revealed to be his will. But that's what Isaac was determined to seek. So basically, everybody in this chapter is 
functioning in rebellion against God. Right? Isaac is actively resisting God's will, and Jacob and Rebekah are, of course, at fault in an even more egregious and pronounced way in the way they shamelessly deceive Isaac into pronouncing his blessing on Jacob. And as we'll see later in the chapter, Esau also is at fault for his own resistance to God's will and for his utter hatred of Jacob. And of course, let's not forget about Esau's polygamous marital relationships either that are mentioned at the end of the chapter. So this entire chapter is filled with characters who are in a state of sinful rebellion against God. Like there is no hero, humanly speaking, in the story of Genesis 27. Only sinners. Like we're dealing with an entire brood of sinners in Genesis 27, all sinning in their own unique ways. It's kind of like a, maybe a reality TV show when you think about it. I mean, who needs reality TV when you've got the book of Genesis, right? I mean, there's just as much jealousy and, you know, shameless deception and scheming and just general rottenness here in Genesis 27, as you'll find on your average TV show. Yet here's what's striking about this passage. In the midst of all of these sinful people and their sinful decisions, God accomplishes his purpose. In fact, we could even go beyond that. God doesn't just accomplish his purpose in the midst of these people and their decisions. He actually accomplishes his purpose through these people and their decisions. Think about that. God uses the sinful behavior of these characters in the story to accomplish his own sovereign purpose. And that's the main idea of this passage. God uses people's sinful behavior to accomplish his sovereign purpose. That purpose was for Isaac to pronounce a blessing on Jacob so that Jacob would indeed be, as God had already revealed his will to be, exalted over Esau and be established as the recipient of God's covenant blessings. That was God's goal the whole time. And he worked not just in the midst of people's sinful behaviors or in spite of their sinful behaviors. No, he actually worked through their sin to accomplish his purpose. You know, a few weeks ago in our examination of Genesis 24, we explored what's often called the doctrine of God's providence. Uh, providence means that God's not only in control of everything, but also working through everything to accomplish his purposes. So he's not only sovereign, but also purposeful in that sovereignty. That's providence. Yet here in Genesis 27, we come to an even deeper understanding of providence, since we see it extends even to the sinful decisions that people make. God's providential workings in this world include the evil that takes place in the world. And I know that's 
hard to swallow. But that's what we see, both here in Genesis 27 and also in numerous other scriptures as well. For example, consider what God says in Isaiah 45, verse 7. He states, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Hmm. Not only, you see, does God form light, he also what? Creates darkness. Not only does he make well-being, he also creates calamity. He's the one who does all these things. In addition, consider Amos 3.6, which asks, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Again, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The implied answer, of course, would be no. We also read this in Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity... Consider, God has made the one as well as the other. God's the one who's made the day of adversity. And then lastly, consider Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, which says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High, right? That, that command of the Most High, that good and bad. So I think these scriptures make it very clear that God's involved in some way and to some degree in bringing about the evil that takes place in this world. His providential workings include the evil deeds that people do and the evil events that take place. Now, it's also critical to understand that the Bible teaches that God is good. And that God only does what's good. And that he never does what's evil. 1 John 1.5 states that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And in Psalm 5.4, the psalmist says to God, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And so the question is, how do we reconcile these scriptures with the scriptures we just looked at that talk about how God brings about evil? And let's just acknowledge that that's not an easy thing to do. It requires a lot of thought and consideration and nuance. I think the most helpful way to describe it is to say that God is indeed responsible for both good and evil, but not in the same way. We might say that his relationships to good and evil are asymmetrical. The way he relates to good is different than the way he relates to evil. Essentially, God relates to good in a direct way. He directly causes things that are good to come about. However, by contrast, he relates to evil in an indirect way. He only indirectly causes things that are evil to come about. The beings who are directly 
responsible for evil are God's creatures, such as people and Satan and other demons. Here's the way uh, the great reformer Martin Luther describes it. He writes, When God works in and by evil men, evil deeds result. Yet God, though he does evil by means of evil men, cannot act evilly himself. For he is good and cannot do evil. But he uses evil instruments, we might say evil agents, which cannot escape the impulse and movement of his power. And so when evil occurs, both God and his creatures are involved in that evil act. However, only the creature is guilty of the evil act, since it's the the creature who relates to that evil act directly. God's relation to evil is always indirect and is always driven by good intentions and good purposes and therefore isn't morally blameworthy. And so God does bring about evil, but not in any way that would make him uh, guilty of evil or morally blameworthy. Um, and only when it serves to accomplish his good purposes. And so we might say that God deserves the credit for good, but not the blame for evil. So in our main passage, Genesis 27, Jacob and Rebekah are 100% at fault for their lies and deception. They bear the entirety of the blame for their sinful behavior. However, at the same time, God was at work through their sinful behavior to accomplish his good purpose of establishing Jacob as the recipient of his covenant promises. All this also reminds me of a story that occurs later on in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. After Joseph's brothers commit a terrible evil against him by selling him into slavery, He says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So even though what Joseph's brothers did was unquestionably wrong and terribly unjust, Joseph recognizes that God was actually the one who was ultimately behind their actions, and was using everything that happened to accomplish his perfect purposes. And I know, again, that a lot of this can be very difficult to swap. Uh, I imagine many of you have been listening to the things I've been saying and uh, probably feel the weight of the Bible verses that I've quoted but perhaps still just aren't quite sure how you feel about all of this. And I'll just say that's, that's understandable. However, you might find it helpful to ask yourself, is there any other understanding of the way things work that could possibly be more comforting than this? I mean, is the alternative to this, you know, that God isn't, sovereign over evil, really any more comforting than to say that he is sovereign over evil? I don't think so. 
and neither does John Piper in his book entitled Providence. Piper writes, Is it more comforting to think that the powers of life and death are ultimately in the hands of one who hates us rather than one who loves us? Is it more comforting to think that there is no guide and ruler at all, but that the events of nature are random, meaningless, without design or purpose, and that not even God can turn the course of things for the good of his children? Piper then shares a letter that he once received from a 27-year-old father whose trust in God's providence was put to the test. The father writes, My wife and I packed the car to go to our first ultrasound. Our plan was to get the news about whether it was a boy or a girl and then grab smoothies and celebrate. But as we sat in our appointment, we watched as the happy chatter of the ultrasound tech quieted to a focused, silent gaze at the screen. Why was she looking intently at the images? She then got up and left the room, making some excuse about printing something off. Finally, the doctor entered. He said he regretted to inform us that the ultrasound was quite conclusive. Our daughter had spina bifida. There was also the potential of genetic disorders known as trisomy 21, Down syndrome, and 18, infant death syndrome. All of a sudden, the subject of God's providence was not theory anymore. It was a real-life, I-need-some-answers-now moment. Did God allow this? Worse yet, design it. Certainly, he could not be the architect of so much pain. And then I read of your mother's death. Uh, that, that's a reference, by the way, to the story of John Piper's mother being involved in a car accident and, and dying in that car accident when a load of lumber uh, basically impaled her. Um, the, the bus she collided with, uh, the bus she was in collided with a truck that was carrying lumber, and the lumber basically crushed her. Uh, the letter from the young father then continues, speaking to John Piper. You wrote, I took no comfort from the prospect that God could not control the flight of a four-by-four. For me, there was no consolation in haphazardness, the father writes. And he continues, and it hit me. Neither did I find comfort or consolation in haphazardness. No matter what I had thought I believed in the past, the only place where hope was found in that moment was in the hands of a sovereign God who is in control and ordains the falling of a sparrow and the electing of kings and the flights of four-by-fours and the spinal development of our precious daughter. It was here that hope was found. And hope, being the seedbed of joy, began growing in our hearts, a joy that could truly be shaken by no pain. So I ask again, in the midst of extreme suffering and pain and even tragedy, is it really desirable to maintain that those terrible events are outside of God's sovereign control? Is there really any comfort or consolation in that? 
can't see how there would be. Instead, it would seem to be exponentially more comforting to embrace what the Bible says about God being sovereign over evil in such a way that evil ultimately works out for good. I mean, where's greater comfort found in saying that this terrible event was totally random and without any purpose whatsoever and was outside of God's control or to say that this event, as terrible as it is, was ordained by a good God for a good purpose. And that that good purpose will be accomplished, no matter how difficult things might be right now. I don't know about you, but I'll take that second scenario over the first any day of the week. I would much rather struggle and grapple with the purposes and ways of God than be left in the utter darkness and hopelessness of suffering without purpose. Suffering isn't ever easy, but with God, we can be confident that not one drop of the suffering we experience will ever be wasted. Not one drop. As Romans 8.28 so famously says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. That means, dear friends, that everything we encounter, it's like a tile in the beautiful mosaic of God's perfect plan. We might not be able to see how that tile fits into the rest of the mosaic and contributes to the beauty of the mosaic, but it does. And if we could see the the full mosaic, the way God sees it, then we'd understand why each tile is so necessary. And I'm anticipating that when we get to heaven, we will have that understanding. But for now, we simply take God's word for it and rest in his promise that all things work together for good. So let me encourage you to trust in God's sovereignty and goodness and wisdom. Even when you can't understand exactly why or exactly what he's doing in your life. Someone once said that even when we can't trace God's hand, we still need to trust his heart. To to trust in who we know God to be. From Scripture. And that trust is a very active thing. A theologian named Jerry Bridges writes that trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. In addition, I'd also like to encourage you not to neglect praising God 
for his many blessings. You know, so often we, we allow ourselves to focus exclusively on the things in our lives and in this world that are difficult with the result that we fail to recognize all of the ways in which God providentially watches over us and causes things to go well for us. Going back again to John Piper's Providence book, he writes, I can't help but pause here to make an observation about the way the world responds to God's providence. If there's a storm at sea and an ocean liner is sunk, or if a hazardous weather condition brings down a commercial airliner and lives are lost, there's often an outcry about the failure of God to prevent this disaster. But where is the corresponding emotional intensity or even mild recognition of God's providence when 100,000 airplanes land safely every day? That is roughly how many scheduled flights there are every day in the world, and that does not include general aviation, air taxis, military, and cargo. Where is the incessant chorus of amazement and thanks that today God provided 10 million mechanical and natural and personal factors to conspire perfectly to keep these planes in the air and bring them to their destination safely. And most of them carrying people who neglect and demean God every day. You know, that's a great question. Should we not be just as fervent in our praise and thanksgiving to God for all his innumerable blessings that we experience every single day as we are in our struggles and prayers when tragedy strikes? I mean, how many things How many technological marvels had to work just so you could get to church this morning? How many things had to work in your car so that you could get safely here? That's God's providence, and he deserves all the praise. And then lastly, as we consider God's relationship to evil, and specifically in Genesis 27, how God used people's sinful actions to accomplish his sovereign purposes... We understand that the greatest example of God using evil to accomplish good is in the gospel itself. You see, the biblical teaching of God using evil to accomplish good isn't some peripheral truth that we only find in relatively obscure passages like Genesis 27. It's a truth that's at the very heart the gospel. The gospel is the message of Jesus coming to this earth, living a perfectly sinless life, and then being crucified on a cross. And the whole series of events that led to Jesus being crucified was terribly unjust. From the false accusations that were made against him, to the kangaroo court that was held in the middle of the night, to the way Pontius Pilate turned Jesus over 
to the Jews, even though he knew full well Jesus was not guilty of any wrongdoing. Everything that happened to Jesus that led to him dying on the cross was a gross miscarriage of justice. Without question, it was evil. And of course, the most horrendous act of evil was the crucifixion itself. And yet, God was at work through it all. In Acts 2.23, as Peter's speaking to the Jews of Jerusalem about Jesus, he states that this Jesus delivered up on the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there you have it. The most evil act in the history of the world. The murder of the, the sinless Son of God was indeed carried out by people. Now, as Peter says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And yet we also read that the crucifixion ultimately happened according to what? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. From the very beginning, God planned it. God was at work through people's sinful actions to accomplish his own sovereign purpose. And that purpose was to rescue his people from their sin. See, in his death on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. See, basically, we had sinned, and somebody needed to suffer the punishment for those sins. And of course, typically, that somebody would be us. And yet, in his love, Jesus voluntarily stood in our place and suffered on our behalf. And it's in that way that God used the horrific evil that the Jews and Romans committed against Jesus to accomplish the greatest rescue this world has ever known. Yet in order for us to benefit from what Jesus has accomplished uh, on the cross and also in his subsequent resurrection from the dead, the Bible teaches that we have to put our trust in Jesus to rescue us. And that involves recognizing not only that we've sinned, but also that we're utterly helpless to do anything to rescue ourselves from the punishment our sins deserve, and instead looking to Jesus and him alone to rescue us from that. And so if you haven't yet done that, I would encourage you to do so like before you even leave here today. I mean, there, there's nothing more important or more urgent you could ever do than to make sure that you've received the rescue Jesus offers and you've been made right with God and that you've been, you have hope for eternity. 